0: The FT. This was the week when Taylor Swift changed Apple's mind, when Greece and the EU nearly changed theirs, when a CIA backed security company was valued at $20 billion, and when rogue trader Quaku Adaboli left jail after three years behind bars. I'm Henry Mance, and this is Best of the FT podcasts. On this week's show, the chess game between Russia and NATO, the future of Formula One, and why Americans always moan about taxes. But we start with egos. Mine, yours, and indeed Lucy Calloway's. Our management columnist has found two studies that show just how self-obsessed we really are. Here's study number one.
1: Psychologists from Harvard and the University of Chicago asked academics who co-wrote papers to estimate what percentage of the work each was responsible for. Added together, the estimates came to an average of 140%. A similar study with MBAs produced a similar result. Our egos make us think that we're more important than we are. Or, as the academics put it, there's an egocentric bias in responsibility allocation.
0: And here is study number two, an experiment at Harvard University.
1: In the experiment, people were given a choice. They could either answer questions about their own opinions for a small financial reward, or, for a larger reward, could answer questions about someone else, like Barack Obama. Most people were happy to forego extra money so long as they could hold forth on their favourite subject, themselves.
0: Talking of egos, there was news this week about Formula One and its supremo, Bernie Eccleston. Eccleston and the investors who own Formula One have been trying to work out what to do with the sport. Should they list it on the stock market or sell it to a broadcaster like Discovery Communications? The latest option, reported by the FT on Tuesday, is a consortium of US and Qatari investors who want to buy a chunk of Formula One. Malcolm Moore, our leisure industries correspondent, broke the story and is here now. Malcolm, thanks for joining us. Now, what do you actually buy if you buy Formula One, not the cars, presumably?
2: No, so what's up for grabs is the commercial rights holder for Formula One. That's what CVC Capital Partners has 35.5% of. And it's basically a company called Delta Topco. It's offshore. We don't know much about it. It's ownership. You know, CVC's got the largest stake, and it's also got a controlling share. And then Bernie Eccleston's got 5%. His family have probably got another 10%. And there are a range of smaller minority shareholders. What the US-Qatari group is looking to do is to first buy out CVC and then hopefully amass the rest of it.
0: So you're not buying the cars, you're buying the rights to sell Formula One shows to broadcasters, to sell sponsored stuff, to get all that access that has been very lucrative for organisations like FIFA, one supposes.
2: Yes, but also Bernie Eccleston is the chief executive of Formula One and he controls it. And um, obviously that group has a lot of influence over what happens in Formula One.
0: Now, we know that there's huge demand for top tier sports rights. The rights to the Premier League were worth about five billion in the last auction. Formula One used to be certainly a top tier event. Are the audiences holding up? Is the interest holding up?
2: It still is a top tier event. I mean, there's no doubt it's a global sport. The bidders, if they do make a bid, they're not quite there at the bidding stage yet. But if they do go ahead, they feel it's under commercialised in the US. And there are other problems with Formula One. People within the sport say that it hasn't caught the attention, public attention quite so much in recent years. There have been some problems over management. And certainly, it looks like audiences are beginning to fall away a little bit. We don't know that TV figures have fallen that dramatically. But what we do know is that at the Austrian Grand Prix last weekend, the attendance was 40% down year on year.
0: Now, there are US investors, but there's also really notably Qatari involvement here. There have been trophy assets being swept up. They've obviously got the World Cup. Is this just another sort of trophy asset for them? Absolutely.
2: So as I understand it, it's Qatar Sport Investments that is behind this bid. And really, they are the driving force behind the bid. The US side of it is really just the front, but it is Qatari money that's powering it. And Qatar really see sport as one of those commodities that's absolutely vital to human existence like food and property and they want to be all over it and they're going about it in a very committed way so you know if you look at what they've done in football it's not just the world cup they also own Paris Saint-Germain they sponsor Barcelona they have all sorts of interests all over and in motor racing as well they have a seat on the World Motorsport Council. And uh, that's now sitting in Doha as well. So, I mean, you know, when they get into something, they want to have as much of it as they can.
3: Great.
0: Malcolm, thanks for joining us. This is the time of year when Americans moan about their taxes. And with some justification, Lisa Pollock, one of the FT's resident Americans, asked tax historian Joseph Thorndike to explain what is the problem with the US and
4: taxes. Americans are really pretty weird uh, on this subject because... um, I think we we clearly have a predisposition to complain about taxes, and uh, certainly any of your listeners in the UK can appreciate that, since you know to some extent the American Revolution really is about it, uh, taxes. Uh, there is a strain of small government, sort of libertarianism, in American political culture, and I think that uh, it's not dominant, but it's broadly resonant. and, and Tax doesn't sit well with that. I also think that because Americans rely so heavily on the income tax, and we don't have any sort of broad-based national consumption taxes like a VAT, that creates problems as well, because the income tax is particularly complicated, particularly invasive and intrusive. People have been complaining about that for centuries. Um, You know, the VAT is by no means a panacea, but at least for the individual taxpayer, it's a lot more seamless uh, than the income tax really is.
0: US income tax returns are notoriously complicated, with credits, deductions, phase outs, etc. What is the point of it all?
4: Usually, they're designed to fine tune the tax system in some way, um, often to fine tune it for the purposes of fairness. You know, so for instance, the deduction for medical expenses or extraordinary medical expenses is a source of some complexity, but most people also think that it's only fair that people who have, you know, huge medical bills are able to deduct that instead of being taxed on what they'd paid for that. So there, there are a myriad of things that are like that. They, they're trying to do good things for the world, trying to do good things for the taxpayer, but they make things complicated. Um, You mentioned phase-outs. Those are another good example. And these are provisions that reduce the value of a tax preference as uh, income rises. And those are intended to deny benefits to people at the upper end, you know, make a lot of money because who wants to give benefits to people who don't need it? It might make the system more fair, but it comes at a real price and complexity.
0: Meanwhile, the aggressive stance of Russian President Vladimir Putin over Ukraine has led the US to increase its commitment to NATO. The FT's Ben Hall asked our defence correspondent, Sam Jones, how serious is the threat from Russia?
3: I think that probably depends on who you are in NATO. Certainly a lot of the alliances, Eastern European member states take it very seriously. And so if you just look actually at the defence spending figures, which NATO released yesterday, the map kind of shows pretty starkly who is significantly increasing their budgets I mean, lots of the Baltic states are sort of, you know, double-digit increases to defence spending in the last year and then that sort of falls away the further you get from Russia. Whether all of this is sabre-rattling or whether there really is something more to it, I think actually remains to be seen And the alliance itself, even at the sort of top level, even when you're talking to some of the big players in it, don't really yet have a handle on how exactly they're characterising this new relationship with Russia. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, said last week that this wasn't a new Cold War, but neither was this the partnership that NATO and Russia had had for the past 20 years. So there's not yet that kind of pithy phrase that sums up the relationship with Russia. Russia may have hoped that
0: slight confusion might make it difficult for NATO to play tough. If so, it may be disappointed.
3: NATO is actually, I think probably moved a lot faster than many would have thought several months ago. And in terms of what is going on in Europe, in terms of the pre-positioning of materiel, the opening of six new logistical forward headquarters in Eastern European states, things like new powers being granted to the NATO's top military commander here, those kind of things six months ago seemed you know, very bold and perhaps they were going to take a long time to put into action. But in actual fact, it's all happened very quickly. And now NATO is even talking about what next.
0: Some European politicians have grumbled about cuts to defence budgets. Meanwhile, Russia has reminded Europe of its own huge nuclear arsenal.
3: How do these things fit together? NATO as a whole spends a vast amount more money on defence than Russia does. And I think that goes back to this nuclear question, actually, which is one of the reasons why Russia has become so much more outspoken about its nuclear posture is precisely because that it can't compete with NATO on conventional terms. And the nuclear issue is really a sort of trump card that Russia has and a very strong one to play and one that sort of menaces NATO states. But ultimately, for NATO itself, it's also an issue of reassurance within the alliance. Perhaps one of Russia's main vectors of attack, if you like, is to threaten NATO and then watch NATO split itself apart as some NATO states argue about whether they should or shouldn't be responding to Russian aggression.
0: If Russia can create divisions among NATO, its strategy may be working. Finally, North Korea. How does a pariah regime, which seems basically cut off from the world economy, bring in the foreign exchange to pay for its imports. The FT's investigations correspondent, Tom Burgess, has written a detailed piece on that and a shadowy organisation called Office 39. Here he is reading an extract from that piece. North Korea is brought in foreign exchange by exporting guns, methamphetamines, mushrooms and indentured labourers. Perhaps most lucratively, it also sends textiles, coal and minerals across its border with China. Andrea Berger, a North Korea expert at a UK think tank called the Royal United Services Institute says this, Office 39 is extremely important. It's generally regarded as the regime slush fund. For the full story on Office 39 and how it may interact with a little-known Chinese businessman called Sam Parr, go to ft.com slash podcasts. That's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next Friday. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.